Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to Series 4 of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Happy New Year to all our listeners. Um, I'm delighted to be joined today by Christy Perrot. Christy is the founder and owner of Thrive Marketing Communications, which is a full service marketing consultancy which specialises in um, working with people in the recruitment industry. Christy's actually got uh, a lot of first hand experience. She was uh, 16 years herself. Uh, in the recruitment sector, culminating in a role as a marketing communications director for an international Fortune 500 recruiter. Christy's joining us today to explore just how digital marketing is transforming the recruitment industry. Um, so uh, without further ado, Christy, let's start there, shall we? Um, can you just describe for our listeners some ways that you see that transformation actually happening at the moment. Absolutely. And, and thanks for having me on, on your podcast, Alice. And I'm really excited to be here. And, and indeed, I think our industry is really at, at quite a transition period. I, I think the last few years we've been grappling with this, oh, are robots taking our jobs? And, and I, I think we've come to the conclusion, thankfully and happily, that no, they're not changing our jobs it, it, or they're not taking our jobs. They're just changing the way that that we approach some things. And, and you know, whether it's your your CRM or some of your, you know, applicant tracking systems, et cetera, that, that you're leveraging on the operations side of your business. Same too with marketing. We've just gotten to this point that we have the technology is now available. I think the industry is ready and, and you know, interested in seeing on how we can enable, you know, facilitate the great work that recruitment is doing already. You know, it still is about that candidate relationship, that client relationship, but there are ways that we can actually attract more people and, and, and reach more people through digital channels and, and ultimately pull them through, which, which gives the recruiters that much more opportunity really to, to, to work the job, work their business and, and, you know, hopefully are successful for, for their companies as well as themselves while they do it. Thinking about a startup business, um, and, and many of our, our um, recruitment listeners are people who have maybe left a, a big stable to set up on their own. Thinking about those people, it's often really hard to get started on marketing. They're trading on connections, people with whom they already have relationships. And a lot of their business um, development activity may still be focused on ye old fashioned telephone. And a lot of them find it very hard to get started. So thinking about the, you know, a business from the beginning, what are the, the first things you would put in place in terms of a marketing strategy? I, th I think the first one, I mean, everybody will get a website. Everything starts with a website and really the website should be the heart of everything you're doing. A little bit of extra investment on the front end to almost prepare you for, for phase two, you know, maybe not phase three and four. If, if they're if they're coming from a large company, chances are they, their website's quite developed. They, they may not know the, all the ins and outs of it, but they a website ef effectively shouldn't just be a brochure. It should be an acquisition tool. So it's a way to attract people from the web, from social media, from, from all your different channels as, as the central force that, that it pulls them in. That said, you're probably not ready at that point right when you're at startup phase. So instead of just doing a very, very basic, you know, there's some, some great tools that are very cheap and cheerful, a couple hundred pounds, invest a little bit more and at least get yourself in a position that maybe you're not ready to turn on the bells and whistles, but when you're ready for phase two, phase three, it's kind of set up for you. Okay, so um, those just give us a, an example of those sorts of tools that are right for a startup business. Well, obviously your job, board and posting, 
every recruiter needs a job board. Even if you're executive search, if you look at the big executive search firms, I know this goes counterintuitive to some of, um, you know, our learnings of the industry and what that what that specialism in itself is used to because it's that's not the model. But having those job listings are actually incredible for SEO, for people to allow you to find your jobs and find your company, particularly with the advent of both Google for jobs, as well as as Indeed and some of these aggregators that pull the jobs. So, so that that's quite critical, regardless of the kind of recruitment you're doing. Right. So displaying jobs as part of your website. 100%. Okay. And, and that is just, if you're doing a, a WordPress site, it's typically just a plugin there's loads of them out there. Uh, WordPress is, for one, also isn't a dirty word. I think people think of it as the old blogging days. WordPress is the most popular um, website platform out there. So don't shy away from it. It's great. Um, or there's obviously a lot of SaaS models on the market that is built in. You get the job function, um, job search function as part of the wider package. And, and it's optimized for all the things you need it to do. It's a little bit more of, a, of an investment, but I think you have to treat it as an offset of what would otherwise be um, internal resource costs, you know, both the website maintenance as, as well as um, enhancements. There are things that can be covered for you that, that otherwise you would need to, you know, have somebody in-house doing that stuff for you. Sure. Okay. So you mentioned there about phase one, phase two. It might be helpful to just talk us through how you define those phases and how they at each stage a business's marketing communications needs to develop. Yeah, and it's it's a great question because I don't think it's it's fixed in 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 stone. You know, I think it really has to marketing at any stage of your of your business maturity needs to complement your sales function and needs to complement your operations. So it needs to be doing the right things at the right moment. So I can't put a monthly, oh, on month three, you need this, on month 12, you need this. But it's looking at that point from, at the beginning stages, you'll probably just need almost like your, it is almost like a brochure. At the beginning, you need to demonstrate um, what your uh, specialisms are, what your value proposition is, what sets you apart from your competition, and your website will probably reflect that. That's that's probably the most basic and what most people can relate to. I mentioned the job search function just because it's easy to turn it on at the beginning. You know, just get it done and put that as part of it. I think the second step, which most people would again probably be very familiar with, is social media. I mean, it's a great channel. It's a in some ways a free channel. I don't think you get the best results always from free, but it can be a free channel. We're used to it. It's a channel we're very, very familiar with, especially if you're on the professional side of, of recruitment, professional occupations with LinkedIn, et cetera. But at the same time, it, it is limited. It is, I, I find it a bit more of a brand exercise and people understanding your brand. It's good to get in the mindset of going back to that website being the heart of everything you do. So again, finding ways to use that as, as almost like the, the carrot or, or something for people to get some interest, find a way to pull them back to your website. So whether that is um, just even posting your job postings. So you know that you have, those are pages of content, post them out on social media, do it with a little pizzazz, you know, remembering that the algorithms for LinkedIn, for instance, but same thing with, with Facebook, um, they respond to video. So if you do a very quick clip of yourself, I think our audiences are, are used to this content. There's nothing bad about it. It's just get on videoing yourself, put that out there. There's tools like Canva, which enables anybody to create little social posts and, and little kind of visual without uh, both a, a very small price tag on it, as well as you don't need a lot of graphic design skill to be able to do this. Create some of those posts in, in social media or a little pro, uh, promotional posts about your jobs or about your testimonials, your, some of your case studies. And again, find a way to drive people back to your website. And that'll probably f suit most people in that very first startup phase. They probably don't have a huge database at that moment in time. Um, they're building it and there'll be ways to continue building that out and, and, and maximizing it. But in first instance, you really are wanting to drive brand awareness and enough interest and volume to, the right amount of volume, I should say, to, to enable you to meet the needs for your operations and sales at that given time. Okay. So what I'm hearing then is that's very candidate orientated. In phase one, um, how do you see marketing communications with clients, potential clients? 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. I think there is a misnomer out there that only candidates are, are looking online, you know, that, that, you know, that Google search, et cetera. And again, this may not be quite phase one. This may be phase two by the time your content or jobs or website is showing up on Google searches. It takes a bit of time to index. But in all of that, and, and I know I'm not quite answering the question because it was about phase one, but you need to think of, of clients at the end of the day are a B2B audience. And there's some incredible examples on how B2B marketing can work. And, and that means search as well. So clients are looking at how much they should be paying candidates, how, how to interview a internal comms professional or a, a finance manager, how to um, write a job description for X, X role, whatever it might be. So thinking about the things that, that they're already doing in their persona, in their behavior, and just targeting, whether it's your social media posts, your, your content that you're creating, targeting it to that audience Will, will go a long way. And, and again, it'll it'll set you up for when you're now ready for that phase two and phase three. And what does phase two look like in terms of headcount or activity going on in a typical spot recruiter? And I'm just differentiating there between people who do spot contingency work and those who do who work under master service providers or master vendor contracts. I think it come, becomes a time when you start looking at getting inbound leads. So, and, and this is one that whether you're your startup or scale up or, or even more established recruitment businesses, this is when I was going back to the how is you know marketing changing the landscape is that we're now able to look at ways to attract those inbound leads. That doesn't mean we have to pick up a phone or individually message people in in-mails on, on LinkedIn, et cetera. So there, there comes that tipping point when suddenly you, you need to be generating that inbound traffic. It definitely would be done somewhat centrally, you know, at that point that it, you know, your consultants are, are best positioned to be working the phones, to be working their networks, and whether that is email or phone or, or out networking at events, whatever that might be. But as a business, you recognize the opportunity to centralize that lead generation and, and look at some different marketing techniques, which may be anything from pay-per-click advertising or Google display ads. It might be paid social. It might be some other paid job boards is, is one, although I, I'd like to argue we can start moving away from job boards, even if it's hosting events. But, but suddenly we're getting to the point that we're able to put a line item in for marketing in, in the budget and we're able to actually look at you know, some sophisticated ways to start getting that inbound I customer see. Okay. attraction. So would that typically also be your first dedicated marketeer as a hire? Possibly, but possibly not. I, I actually would say, you know, I think if you are going to put a marketeer in, I, th I think you have to make sure, yeah, I think you have to invest in it. I, ultimately, I think there is a bit of a trend in the industry that there's this thought that, okay, well, that this marketeer, maybe they were a recruiter who just had a, a love for social media and marketing, or maybe it's somebody as an intern or a first job. The challenge that person's going to have is they just won't know the direction to take it. There, there's just, of course, I'm sitting here and I, I, I'm in a great position to say, oh, you need the strategy. You need the, the knowledge of the industry. You need to to know um, the technologies and, and what channels attracts the best candidate. But these are things that that individual typically won't um, they won't have it. They just won't have the market, um, whether it's marketing, recruitment industry or, or general market knowledge mm -hmm. to be able to to do that on their own. And, and, and no offense to the business owners out there, but most of them are not digital marketers either. So, so they don't necessarily know all the advancements. And, and long gone are the days of just being the coloring in department, which I've heard on many occasions. You know, there is some sophistication to it. So a bit of investment, whether it is through outsourced consultancy or even just getting that individual, some that, that junior marketer, some support and direction, mm. I think is a good investment and goes a long way. Okay. That's really interesting. Interesting. So I was with um, a business owner just last week and he has actually gone and hired a marketeer. And his question to me was, I don't know how to manage this person. He had no idea what sort of KPIs or what to focus them on in what order. So imagine some of our listeners have actually hired somebody and they are focusing on, as you mentioned, making sure that we have traffic out on social media, that we've got, the website is as good as it can be at that stage. What kind of measures of success would you suggest a small business owner uses for marketing? 
Yes. So this is going to be a scary figure for everyone. Um, the dashboards that I typically use have 140 KPIs as, as a baseline on wow. it. And it can grow from there. Um, that said, the most important, most of them are just kind of contributing factors to what is the most important thing, which is customers. And whether that is candidate CVs, so actually tracking the CVs that come through, mm-hmm. not just the traffic to the website, not just the likes on LinkedIn or some of these, I call them vanity metrics. It feels good. I mean, I like getting likes on the posts I put out too, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's benefiting my business. So it's looking at what, what are those conversion points. So those conversion points, that, that's marketing speak, but it's effectively a candidate or a client acquisition, which is typically they provide their CV, whether it's applying for a job or uploading their CV, or they register interest of some sort. It might be um, just, just putting their name in for follow-up, or it might be um, a newsletter sign-up or something. Mm-hmm. And on the client side, it would be either submit a job order or request a callback of sorts. Mm-hmm. And I'd argue there's a third or, or a third persona, and that's your internal recruitment. So that, that could be one as well. So internal hires putting in the, their CV. At the end of the day, I kind of laugh at this is the other metrics actually don't really matter as long as you get good volume and obviously good quality um, that comes through on on, the, on those con- conversion or acquisition metrics. Right. OK, so thank you. That's a really important point to focus on actual applications or statements of interest rather than a total number of followers on LinkedIn or whatever, which is a means for an end, but not an end in itself. Exactly. And and, and I'd even argue, I'd, I'd say my, my, my number two on, on that list is start looking at where your traffic is coming from or where not just your traffic, but those conversions are coming from. So if you start looking at all the different channels, and this is quite an important one because I think we've probably a lot of people have heard the rumors about Indeed shutting off the organic listings for recruiters. And this has been actually in the rumor mill for several years now. And and there's various theories on, on why it's not happened so far. But if you look at most recruitment agencies, you will, and if you look at your, it's Google Analytics is what you go into, and you look at where your traffic sources and where your conversion sources are coming from, you're better going to believe that a lot of them are coming or most of them are probably coming from Indeed. So this allows you to then also look at what are the channels that bring the best conversion traffic or candidates or clients, as well as the most traffic that once you get them there on your website, you can convert them into customers, whether it's a candidate or client. Mm, I see. Okay. So moving on, how would you characterize phase three in a recruitment agency's development? Yeah, I think really, you know, once you get all of those channels working together, and I'm going to unfortunately put in another metric here. I hope I'm not um, blowing people's no, brains love, on we this. We love metrics. We love <laughs> a good metric. Um, it comes down to cost per acquisition. So when can we actually get to the point that we can see, if we look at all of those channels that I just mentioned, so we have traffic coming and coming from Indeed and converting from Indeed. We have traffic coming from ABCDE job boards, mm-hmm. traffic coming from LinkedIn, traffic coming from organic search and all, all these different channels. Which one is providing you the best conversions and at what cost? Right. Right. So if you're so, paying for advertising, uh-huh. what is the cost per application from said advertising? So we're talking about um, by acquisition, you're talking about application rather than placement. At yeah. this point, yes. Um, there are some incredible CRMs that can pull it all the way through. I think the challenge we have, it, sorry, all, with, all the way through to placement. So you can see the whole journey and what were the contributing factors. I think the the hard one in our industry is the fact that there is that human touch at the end. And it, it's not, you know, it's not as, as obvious as you go onto Amazon and you pick something up and you put it in your cart and you press mm-hmm. pay now. Um, there is that human factor at the end, which is both the, the client side, it's the candidate, um, you know, if, if they end up wanting the job. And of course, you know, quite often you're competing with other agencies. So, so it's a little bit difficult to pull it all the way through. But you could. And, and it is an interesting metric if, if you do get that sophisticated. Okay. So I'm a business owner. Here I am in phase three and I've got all these different channels to market, bringing inquiries in, building my database. And suddenly I have a substantial database. And yet still, every time there's a new assignment, my recruiters are going straight to LinkedIn recruiter or placing an advert. What's your advice to business owners for getting better value from their database? 
I could imagine this is very frustrating for, for business owners. I mean, at the end of the day, you have, a, you know, a, acquired these contacts. You know, I'm going to I'm going to talk in very black and white terms. So you've, you've acquired them. They're sitting in your database. And ultimately, they're they're a depreciating asset because clients, they move jobs. So suddenly their email is no longer valid a few years on candidates, too. They might change their their email address mm-hmm. and it's just sitting there and, it, and the data is getting older and older. Mm-hmm. And I think um you know, if you think of the recruiter side at the same time, they don't know that your consultant doesn't know from that database, it could be a lot of work to mine that database. They don't know the stage of the funnel. They don't know if it's good data. They don't know if that person's in the moment of a a buying moment, whether it's a candidate looking for a job or a client looking for staff. So to them, you can see how it's labor, very labor intensive where they might not get the return from it, whereas they go to LinkedIn or they, they go to the, these other sources and they know the intent at that moment is that somebody is ready to make a transaction of sorts. So I, I don't blame the recruiter, but I also would be very frustrated as, as the business owner. And, and I think that's really where um, marketing comes into, into it, its own in this. And, and it's going back to, you know, the... I think there's a few things that go into it, if you don't mind me kind of going through them. You know, the first one is really having good data. You know, good data in means good data out. So if you have the the right data that you've been putting in, it'll allow you to to segment that. So look at what are, um, you know, what are the profiles of candidates? What are, when were they last placed in a job? We know that candidates, on average, move job every uh, three to four years. So how do we then re- reactivate them at that moment when they're looking? Um, do we know other figures like on the client side? Are, do you have a perm role that's maybe been out for, for a month or more? At which point should you now be marketing um, you know, contract work to them or, or other opportunity temp, temp, temp fill in order to, to fuel that that uh, that job order. And I think that understanding that is, is the very first place. And, and, and even if you are a business development and not looking at it from a marketing perspective, you can extract these insights and make your business development that much more sophisticated in your outreach and who to target. Okay, that's a really interesting observation there about the, the average life cycle of people in a job. So are you suggesting, for example, that a dormant, that we have some sort of program that goes to dormant candidates on a regular cycle and says, you know, research suggests that you might be looking for a move now. Is that kind of absolutely, thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what's really quite interesting now is, is that I talked about technology and how the advancements there no longer are the days that we just send an email to there to somebody and it just goes into this black hole. You know, the technology now, now enables us to, to one, hook it up to our CRM so we can actually, um, you know, share data back and forth. But secondly, when I talk about marketing automation, it's really around behavioral driven actions, meaning if a candidate opens it or if they click on it, maybe they click on search jobs now, maybe they click on a blog about, um, you know, revamping your CV or, or something, you know that they're now in a buying intent so that they're they're now starting to warm them up and be like, okay, that, that candidate may be... Um, or client for that matter, now may be in starting their journey in that sales funnel. From there, that means you can either just just keep them on a cycle and just keep, whether it's a newsletter or something, and you can watch their engagements, but you also could create customized communications based on that behavior. So if, if they've seen that, oh, okay, this person clicked on how to write a job description, maybe the next one after that is what salary should I be looking for as a marketing manager? or as a finance director, or whatever that might be. And just looking at those different stages that people take when they're making, when when they're commencing a job search, and working that into that communications funnel, you'll start to very quickly see, okay, this person's warming up, this person is now ready to to talk to somebody, talk to your recruiter, because we we now know that they're, they're ready to make a move, they're in the sales process of sorts. Mm. Now, linked to that, you sent me a statistic, which I can't see on my screen now, but it was about how much research and investigation that a typical client prospect will have done before they're willing to speak to someone. Yeah, exactly. So 57% through the buyer's cycle. So through the, so buyers will do 50% of their sales cycle before speaking to 
a, a, a consultant of sorts. So this is a, a B2B profile. This isn't recruitment specific. But mm-hmm. but the difference is that, you know, just like, you know, if, if I'm looking for a new iPhone, you know, I start doing my research. I start looking at blogs and forums and I might go onto the website. I might look at the features. Mm-hmm. Now suddenly um, I'm being followed around by targeted advertising because they, they know my preferences. Mm-hmm. That's happening on the B2B side as well. And, and clients are doing their research mm-hmm. before speaking to you, um, you know, one-to-one. So I think it's really a competitive position. Do you want to be found in that 57% of the time or, or of that cycle? Mm-hmm. Or do you want your competitor to be found? You know, it, it's just the goal is to just cast that net wide, get more customers into that funnel where you can now engage them you know, when they're warm and ready to be, you know, engaging with you. So do we have any insights to a situation like that where somebody thinks they are going to be recruiting and let's assume they haven't got a recommendation or a referral from a a colleague. Do we have any insights into what kind of things would make them follow through with one recruiter instead of another? Yeah, that is an interesting one. I mean, I, I think that the biggest thing when you start thinking about what they're searching for, you have to really start plotting your your key persona. So what's that that client persona and what are the, the pain points at each stage of, the, of that sales funnel? So at the top of the funnel is awareness. So they have awareness, they have an issue and a challenge that they're facing. Um, and, and let's say, you know, if it is recruitment related, it might be, okay, somebody has turned in their notice. That's a pretty good, note, you know, awareness factor that, okay, I might need to hire or that awareness factor might be my team is stretched too thin. Um, it might be there's there was an acquisition or, or maybe they, they've acquired another business or, or you know that there's some investment and growth opportunity. So there's different moments that they will have an awareness that they're going to be hiring. The next step from that is interest. That's the next step in the sales funnel. So now they have an interest in, in hiring. What are the different options available to them? And that could be recruitment or non-recruitment. It might be they go a consultancy route. They might go with a, a freelance or a temp or or they might go a permanent hire, a contract, an interim, et cetera. What are those stages of the interest that their pain point? What are those pain points, I should say, at that stage of interest? Okay, so what we're saying is identify the situations that previous clients have been in when they've made contact or been willing to converse. Um, and identify in your through your marketing with those situations. Precisely. Okay. And it's interesting though, isn't it? In terms of sales activity, traditional telephone-based sales activity, what we still hear is an, a lot of recruiters who are, rather than identifying with situations, they are phoning themselves, phoning up potential prospects and saying, this is what I do. I recruit. And I would argue that there is, this may, might sound a little counterintuitive, but there is no actual market per se for recruitment. It is, um, in many cases, a distressed purchase. It's a bit like me phoning people up and saying, I'm a, a commercial litigation lawyer. And nobody wants to be in that position, but they do want to know someone when they find themselves in that position that gives them you know, a, a quick route to, to a, a professional assistance. But marketing yourself as I do this, I do commercial litigation is not going to lead you to to business if you're a lawyer, is it? And, and let's I mean, there's a lot of lawyers in, in this country. There's a lot of recruiters in this country as well. So you've just spoken in a feature and not in a benefit. Mm. So who cares? You know, great. I do that. Even if I was hiring in that moment or needing commercial litigation in that moment, why would I pick that person when others have been able to contact me? giving me the benefits of their service or, or the benefits of why using, you know, the value proposition, why to use them versus somebody else. And mm-hmm. and I guess that, that from those t- first two examples of, of stages of the sales funnel being awareness, then interest, the third is consideration, and the fourth is preference. So again, thinking in the, that consideration and preference phase, what are the consideration factors that that your client, that that hiring manager has at that stage. It might be price-based. It might be geography. It might be because they got a, a referral from somebody else, you know. And then finally, in the preference stage, what are those factors that, that go into their decision? Testimonials, 
case studies. Maybe that is the word of mouth. Maybe that is that moment they've had the most incredible customer service and experience at that relationship side where, you know, recruiters really can shine at that stage. And, and you know, going back to what I was saying originally, why is digital marketing, you know, kind of disrupting, that's a bit overused word, but why is it changing the recruitment cycle? It's because it enables recruiters to really focus on that high value, high touch point, that, you know, what will make a customer not only want to use you, but but really happy and seeing the value of, of the fees and, and everything that goes with it because you've delivered that, you know, A plus service to them. Mm, okay. Just a note on testimonials. When I start working with uh, new client businesses, recruitment business owners, obviously I look at them as an outsider would look at them. So I look at the messages on their website. Are they differentiating? And um, very few have a very clear proposition that maybe isn't unique. It doesn't need to be unique, but um, very few have a clear idea about what their strengths are. The other piece that I was having a discussion, a full and frank discussion with one of my clients last week about was testimonials. And I felt that testimonials that are unattributed are of very, very limited value, particularly if all they say is, John is a lovely person. It was lovely working with him. Yeah. His argument was, I don't want to put up the names of my clients because my competitors will see them. Where do you stand on that? Putting you on the spot now. (laughs) I think I think you need to be actually respectful of, of that commercial sensitivity. I think part of it, I think even testimonials have come a long way because, you know, there's there's sites like Google Reviews and Glassdoor and, you know, a lot a lot of companies I, I hope will have, you know, these customer feedback channels and, and different ways to be getting that 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 feedback loop. So yes, one hundred percent ideally it um, should have the the customer's, you know, name on it attributed to it. But I think maybe the happy medium, to to your point, is making sure it says something. So if it actually has some value in, they helped us save this much, X amount of time, X amount of money, they solved this problem by doing ABC versus John's a nice guy, you know, suddenly makes that much more more valuable to that reader, even if there isn't, you know, a name attributed to it. Mm -hmm. And still attribute the, the title and the industry at minimum. You can absolutely put that. And it may mean if, if somebody's following up with you that that, uh, that reference would be happy to give a, an anonymous um, recommendation versus being you know, front and sure. centre on the website. Okay. And obviously a lot of clients are bound by their own marketing policies on that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So thinking about uh, just developing that point about how to get a short testimonial doing more for you you have some interesting thoughts i know on on generally getting more bang for your buck from content um what advice would you give our listeners on that front sweat your assets <laughs> i mean really i think there's well, there, there's a few things i think for one we've gotten into the, this this habit i think as recruiters somebody says oh we need a blog if we had a blog, everything is, you know, that that's going to be our marketing strategy. But the reality is if you just create a blog and you've, you're just sharing that content on LinkedIn or, or on, a, on a social channel, typically it has about a 48-hour shelf life. It might get a handful of views, maybe double-digit views if you're lucky, over 48 hours, and then it goes into the ether and it's never seen again. Um, and you can see this. If you start looking at, again, Google Analytics, if you go and you can start looking, you will see that old content. If you don't have an SEO strategy or another promotion strategy around it, get zero views. So you've spent a lot of money, a lot of time, and, and money, whether that's internal resource, that's opportunity cost, as well as, you know, if, if you're outsourcing it, you spent a lot of money on this and it's doing nothing for you. Mm-hmm. Now, the beauty of this kind of content is it actually should start coming to its own in six to 12 months. So if you actually are writing topics that people are searching for online, if you're including those blog posts in newsletters, in ongoing social, you know, we're not, you know, at the end of the day, we're not the the FT or the Times. We're not a news source. We are a, you know, a, a communication sharing platform. So if you're writing a, a blog on 10 CV tips, you know, there's no reason you can't share it three 
six, 12 months down the line. People mm-hmm. are not going to remember. And chances are they wouldn't have seen it the first time anyway. That The LinkedIn algorithms, as, as you probably know, not everybody sees every single post. So feel free to reshare that post. Put that, that, that content into newsletters. Make sure it's optimized for search so you so people are finding it online by, by typing in CV tips, you know, whatever it might be. And just get more out of it. Sweat those assets, you know. Maybe create three or four different little social images. You know, if you have 10 tips on, you know, on how to write a great CV, well, there's 10 different social posts that could come off the back of it. Right. So just doing more with what you have already. Okay, yeah. Right, thank you. Now, we've touched on CRMs and how important it is to keep them up to date and um, to use them as a marketing uh, as as a driver of marketing that brings back and enriches and updates your data. I'm not going to ask you to endorse any particular CRM because I know you will refuse. But if you were now setting up your own recruitment business, what would be on your checklist for the CRM you commit to? Because that is a a long-term commitment. It is. And and I will skirt the issue a little bit in saying I don't claim to be a a business development director or a business development expert. You know, I think really understanding the capabilities and how that fits into your operational processes actually should be your number one thing you're looking at. So making sure that you feel comfortable with it. There's some such incredible bells and whistles out there on, on how job postings appear or how you can, you know, how the the job posting connects to your database and you can see the applicants across and how you communicate with them from a very, very operational standpoint that I'd say nail that first, make it work for you. And I'm not going to give an endorsement to one over another. When it comes to the marketing side, if if I am completely honest, I, I think the technology that's available out there from a marketing automation standpoint hasn't 100% or recruitment CRMs have not necessarily 100% kept up with them. You know, it would be great if everybody had a a budget to get Salesforce in. Salesforce has some incredible marketing automation integration, but it also comes at a price. There are also now some really fantastic marketing automation technologies that will plug in or or have a connector, an API connector to these CRM systems Mm -hmm. that allow you to do what you need it to do from a from a marketing standpoint either speaking back and forth to the crm or at minimum you can work it alongside and and not ideally but you can actually work the marketing automation insights and the lead generation and nurture these these things i was talking about before on nurturing funnels and and communications that are ongoing with customers you can drive leads from there Mm -hmm. that ideally will talk to your crm but if not, you can still extract the leads and still use them in your business development. Okay, processes. so compatibility, whether it's via API or whatever, is a key thing though to look out for. Absolutely, absolutely. So ask the question. You know, you know, ask them what does your tool offer from a marketing automation standpoint, and say, you know, I want to be able, and maybe this is the word track you use. I want to be able to use behavioral triggered um, nurture sequences. Mm-hmm. Write that down, everyone. <laughs> um, ask this, the CRM provider, can you provide that? And and if if they can't, do is there a technology tool that they would recommend that there is this compatibility, as you mentioned? Could you just explain that term for some of our listeners? Behavioral triggered. Exactly. Sequences. So this is, I think this is groundbreaking, uh, ultimately. I, well, I think this was the groundbreaking piece from one year ago. I think that's even advanced. Um, if you let me, I'll explain that as well on, in 2020. But what that means is you can actually look at how, if you send an email, you look at how people interact with it. So let's, for example, say you score them. And this goes back to what I was saying before about nurturing the leads and warming them up, taking a what might be a cold database and, and reactivating those contacts. You start seeing if they engage with the emails you send them. So that might be if they open an email, maybe you give them a score of two. If they click on an email, maybe you give them a score of three. Mm-hmm. After a series of emails that, that can look at the the different stages of the sales funnel, different messaging, you can see not only what they've been opening, but if you continue that scoring, two for opening, three for clicking through, assign a a number. So let's say number 10. As soon as they reach a score of 10, a lead is now driven to the the recruiter or to the the central central function Mm -hmm. saying, 
Mr. or Mrs. Client has now opened, you know, has now reached a score of 10. They are now ready for that engage, that phone call or, or that in further engagement, that one-on-one -on -one engagement. I see. Okay. So it is an engagement score, isn't it? It's an engagement yeah. score. And it's, you know, it's marketing automation, but I'd really think of it as sales automation. This is to, you know, allow you to reactivate that, that CRM without having to make literally thousands in some cases, phone calls, mm -hmm. because, you know, if you've been around two or more years, really, you can get a pretty big CRM pretty quickly. And that is maybe not the, the best use of your consultant's time to be sitting there cold calling every single one of those contacts. Mm -hmm. This is how you automate it. So um, linked to that behaviorally, let me get that right, behaviorally triggered sequences. Um, what other groundbreaking innovations are you seeing or the most important capabilities are you seeing uh, rather than naming particular providers you might be able to give people some general pointers and things they need to be aware of now well the one I'm most excited about actually is how um, a lot of these CRMs or at least how some of these these third-party marketing automation tools connect with either LinkedIn recruiter or LinkedIn sales navigators. Mm -hmm. So it's really stretching that CRM across all these different channels. So this one tool in particular, it allows you to, to do your search, conduct your, your search on recruiter or, or uh, sales navigator, extract those contacts, and you can then, it, it's this reverse lookup tool that it will first look and see, do you currently own those contacts in your database? And if not, it will go out and search the internet and find that contact email. And that's because half the time LinkedIn, if somebody signs up on their personal email or there might not be contact information there at all. But it's within uh, LinkedIn's terms and conditions, this, this program. And then from there, you now have this, this data, the, these contacts that you can now plug into that behavioral triggered nurture sequence and they would be net new contacts. So it allows you to warm them up, see how they're they're engaging with you. Also, I'd say on, on a on a platform that they're probably more likely to engage with you. You know, I, I think as recruiters, we feel that our client and candidates behavior on LinkedIn particularly is a mirror of our own. So we're on LinkedIn all day long. You know, that is, that is a big source of, of the business we're doing and transactions we're doing every day. I'll tell you, when I was back in a corporate role, I was certainly not on LinkedIn in the same behavior. Even though I was in marketing, I did not, I was not checking my LinkedIn as regularly. I was checking my email regularly, obviously. So taking those contacts that you generated from LinkedIn and being able to, you know, source that, that contact and then engage with them on an email platform, I think really can be quite game-changing. Yeah, I can totally see the application for that. Okay, excellent. Now, many of, uh, of our listeners are exploring or have even branched out internationally. We are, as you know, in the UK in a very crowded market. And last year, a number of the biggest players saw their profit contribution from the UK shrinking as a, an overall share. So, you, Christy, have first-hand experience of working internationally across how many countries? 18. 18 different countries, substantial ones from a recruitment market point of view. If it's meaningful, what I'd like to do is, is look at how you might have to adapt your marketing strategy for Europe, appreciating that's many countries, and also the US. Those are the, the two big areas for diversification that my clients certainly um, are looking at. So shall we, where would you like to start? Should we start Let's with start internationally? Okay. We can. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is maybe even thinking first as English speaking, we are English speaking versus non-English speaking. And, and I realize that English is the, the universal language. And I realize if particularly people, you know, possibly working in the tech startup culture and in, in Berlin or, or even um, the Netherlands and, and even the financial markets ac across the, those uh, territories. Yes, the business is conducted in English, it doesn't mean that people's search and, and communications channels are in English. So, for example, if I'm a, a, you know looking for a job in the UK, I will type in marketing director in London as my search 
function. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I was German speaking, I would not be typing that in. It's not my natural language. It's not how people, it's not the behavior of people in those markets. They, they would put it in German or French or Dutch or whatever it might be. So the challenge is though, we have these English websites that we're trying to make them do more on all these countries, but it won't be found. All those things we were saying before on SEO and driving traffic to your website, mm -hmm. It needs to be in local language. It absolutely is. And there, there's some technical sides to the website and whether it should be on the same .com or .de or .fr, whatever these things are. There, there's some considerations that need to match the, the, the company's goals and, and size. But it, at very least, they really should be in local language. Um, the second thing is, same thing goes with social channels. So, you know, again, we're, we're very accustomed to LinkedIn. Germany, for one, is growing LinkedIn. Um, most markets actually are, are quite strong on LinkedIn. But there's also Zing or Kanunu or, or some other platforms that are native German platforms or, or mainly German, but, but some for, for different markets as well. So are we present on those channels as well? Or are we leveraging them? I think the next one is also alluded to before, you know, we, we are English speaking and I think our propensity is to just go and, oh, well, we could translate this content and, oh, it'll be fine. And that's a big no-no, you know, it, or it's a big risk you're taking because language is so personal. And, and I think we all know when something's been really poorly translated to English, mm -hmm. it, it really is a bad experience. And, and it probably, you know, it turns you off anyway. It, it's, you're not going to have that same, you know, attraction and, and, and attachment to, the, to that company. And especially, again, in, in recruitment and, and taglines and slogans and colloquialisms and, and all the different terms we, we use in, in our industry, if they are not properly, I'd say translated, but you actually go, it's actually called transcreated. So culturally and, and you know, translated into the market factors and cultural factors, really goes a long way. Mm. Um, so re you, you do need to think of it as quite unique. You, we can't just say, oh, well, I'll just take my UK program and, and plug it down in, in X country. Right. Um, so it has for, to be tailored for them. For example, then we're talking about where a word or a phrase has um, a whole set of cultural meanings that may be even attached to a, a very well-known TV program or um, a movie. Absolutely. And it just doesn't work translated. Yeah, yeah you'll okay. notice if you ever do work with, um, you know, people from different countries, you'll probably, I find I catch myself quite often, I, I, I drop in little, you know, colloquialisms or, or different kind of funny little examples of words that are very common. You know, you and I as English speakers, we would use these, albeit my, sometimes I have Canadian terminology that might, you know, get in the way sometimes, but we understand each other, mm -hmm. ultimately. But you have to be very careful with that when, when, you're, when you're speaking, because one, they just don't grasp you know, for one, it's English is typically their second language. So, you know, if, if you're speaking fast, I know I speak quite fast, you know, it's harder for them to pick up. But then also the word choices you're using, it just might, you know, it has different meanings or different, maybe even a lack of understanding. Mm. And you, you just need to be very culturally aware of these things. Mm. So and the term you used for that was transcreation. Yeah, so that goes from everything from, you know, if you use a strap line or a slogan of sorts, it's that, it's the, the words and the text, you know, and there are specialist agencies that do this. Um, I, I really think they're worth their weight in gold. They will typically use, even if somebody, let's say somebody, you're translating something into French, and, and we're obviously very close to France, they will go to somebody in France or in French-speaking Belgium, or in French-speaking Canada, mm -hmm. to get them to translate it. Because even a native French speaker living in the UK will have lost some of that cultural side of it from the TV shows or the you know the pop culture references, as, as you mentioned before. Oh, okay. And then switching now to looking at the US or North America, clearly two countries divided by the same language, as they say. How would you suggest, or what, what areas would you suggest a British recruitment business owner looks at if they are looking to trade in the US from a marketing point of view? Yeah, I, I think some of the, the this marketing, some of the things I've even been saying, 
I don't want to say goes out the window, but you actually have to hyper localize it. So it really comes down to the state and your targeting versus all of the US. I mean, it's a massive country. And chances are, you know, in the in the UK, maybe you're a Manchester based recruitment agency, there'd be no problem for you doing, you know, trading in Leeds or London or Birmingham, even, you know, it's a quick train ride or a, or a phone call away. Not as quick as it should be. Not but as quick <laughs> as it should be. Anyway. Um, but in the US, you deal, you're dealing with time zones, you're dealing with much more competition. It's a massive market. You know, you have to think of it as, as five times the population of the UK in a landmass that's, you know, a million times. I don't know how big the landmass is, but so it becomes very, very um, state-based or city-based. I, th- I think you really need to, from a marketing perspective, really think about where you are landing and your marketing gets targeted to California or to Chicago, and maybe California is even a bit big, to San Francisco, to LA, really? to Chicago. And, and so yeah, it's just could being you, targeted. Could you give me doing. an example of how you might vary your message for California or San Francisco? So maybe it's less about message. I probably should have, um, it's more about targeting than, okay. than message. I do think, yeah, your message could be, I think by industry, it probably varies a little bit in in some of those markets, but your message is overall the same. Mm. Um, It comes down to when you're targeting. So if I was doing paid advertising, for instance, I wouldn't want to put the whole US as my my target area Mm. because it's just just too broad and it's never not going to be targeted enough. So I'd be looking at, you know, key regional hubs, as I mentioned before, some of them, um, and targeting myself to to very strict geographical um, boundaries. Right. Okay, that's quite an important lesson, I think, for people who've just worked the UK, that it is actually very regionalised. Okay, And time zones. I mean, I I think it's, I I used to, in Canada, I lived on the West Coast, which is eight hours from the UK and three hours from from the East Coast. So even those kind of things are, are, are just considerations that we don't pick up as much in the UK. Typically, at most, we're maybe looking at the continent quite often and, you know, it's an hour away. But whether it's US or, or even Asian markets, and I, I know we didn't touch on Asian markets, but, you know, the cultural side is, is probably amped up even more. And same with, thing with, with Middle Eastern. You really need to be very, very careful about that brand and that messaging and that cultural being appropriate culturally. Okay, thank you. That's fascinating. So um, some really interesting thoughts on how your marketing strategy and communications can develop from startup through to phase two, phase three. We've also looked at how you can get more benefit from your CRM and behaviorally triggered sequences. I think those are going to be really important and some fascinating insights into working on an international basis. Christy, thank you very much for taking part in our podcast. I've been talking today to Christy Perrot, founder and owner of Thrive Marketing Communications and Christy, you're opening an office in Germany, I believe. Yes, yeah, so we're expanding to Germany this year. You even said it before, there's a lot of uh, agencies looking to create a, a German footprint there. Mm-hmm. And it's something we're excited about. Kind of Q2, Q3 will be uh, fully functioning there as well. Great. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that new venture. Christy, of course, is UK based and I'm sure lots of our listeners will be wanting to contact her. So her contact details will be available. So this was the Recruitment Leadership podcast as produced by Generation Nexus, as always. Um, Recruitment Leadership is a non-exec and advisory business that exists to help recruitment business owners achieve their aims, whether that's sanity, uh, growth plan, or even a business exit type event. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back soon with another episode also focused on marketing. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow Recruitment Leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.